Welcome to the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast, where you will learn career strategies and techniques to help you break down barriers, make more money, and thrive in your tech life at work and at home. Technology has never been more mission critical to our online stay-at-home world, and you are the key to its success. You'll hear from diverse women in tech as well as experts who share both personal and professional strategies so you can transform your work and your workplace from the inside out. I'm Karen Morstel, former Silicon Valley tech leader and serial CISO for iconic brands like AT&T Wireless, Microsoft, and Russell Investments. I hope you will join me in my mission and message of resilience and transformation to make an inclusive and equitable tech industry. If you find this show helpful, please leave us a like and share it. And don't forget to hurry over to createyourleadingedge.com to join innovative and affordable group coaching for women in tech on your terms. And now on to Mojo Maker for Women in Tech. If I were to describe the qualities of today's guest, I would say resourceful, intentional, highly skilled, and quietly confident. I'll let you discover it for yourself as you listen to cybersecurity and privacy professional, Jenna Waters. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast. Today, my guest is a Navy veteran with a background in national security and intelligence. Jenna Waters created her foundation for her career with her undergrad degree in information systems with a minor in cybersecurity and served in threat intelligence in the U.S. Navy and then transitioned to the private sector. Today, she serves her company's clients at the intersection of cybersecurity, privacy, and compliance with program development, threat intelligence, and cloud security. She's currently a consultant at a cybersecurity services firm called True Digital Security. So welcome to the show, Jenna. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. You know, I'd love to dive in to your background and your choices that kind of led you to this particular career path, because there's a lot of women and their allies listening to us today that have questions about how do I make my career happen in cyber? That's just a really hot topic that I'm, I'm noticing. So I'd love to know, first of all, like looking back, what piqued your interest in pursuing cybersecurity? So this is probably going to be the least inspiring answer, but I kind of just fell into it. (laughs) That's a great answer. Actually, that's exactly how I got started. So yeah. So tell me more. Well, so the way my journey started was I knew I wanted to go to college, didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, but I'm the daughter of a single mother. There was no way she could afford to send me to college. So I just decided, you know, the best way for me to afford to go to university and later in life would be to join the U.S. military. And I joined the Navy because they offered me one of the better jobs, which was a cryptologist. And it was just sounded so interesting. And I got to learn a foreign language at the same time. So I am fluent in Korean, which is a strange skill to have. But for me, it kind of came out of nowhere, but it was, it really just set the trajectory that I ended up following. And every step I took has led me here, 
sometimes with intent and sometimes with zero intent. But definitely working in U.S. Naval Intelligence and at the National Security Agency definitely started me down the path of getting into cybersecurity. That being said, I don't think in this day and age, any woman has to go through that to become a cybersecurity professional. I think there are more doors now. You just kind of have to find them. Well, I will say it does look like it really actually helped you accelerate your entry into the private sector. And I think, you know, there's nothing that's an accident, right? There's a reason that you're fluent in Korean. It might not be super evident right now, but that's part of your path. Someday there's going to be an opportunity open up and you're going to go, oh my gosh, look at that. I can bring all of my Korean and everything else I'm doing to play there. So that still remains to be seen, right? Right. (laughs) I mean, it's useful with some of my, you know, friends who are of Korean descent. And so that we have fun with that. But I definitely look forward to the day that perhaps I'll get to use it again, or that it'll be useful in a different aspect of my life that I never expected. Yeah. So you went to Defense Language Institute. Mm -hmm. That's where you learned your Korean. Was that part of your, I don't know if you can talk about this, but You know, we've always talked about some of the, well, historically, I guess, we've talked about some of the cybersecurity issues that appear to come out of some allegedly parts of Korea. (laughs) And so I can imagine how those would fit together, right? That that would actually make sense, that you have the ability to speak that language and you're in threat intelligence today. So that makes sense. Yeah. So a lot of my work was primarily done in threat intelligence and the language skills were part of my training, but it was only one part. Okay. Tell the audience what a career in threat intelligence looks like. Well, so a lot of it is classified, so I do have to keep my answers broad, but I will absolutely do my best. So what I can tell you is I did operate and work on very complex information systems in conjunction with other sophisticated technologies and classified material in, you know, pursuit of a variety of mission and military operations. So what it looks like is essentially you're collecting data on specific threats, on specific targets, you're aggregating that data, analyzing it, and then moving forward with mission objectives and goals. So that's really what it looks like. It's very similar to how the private industry operates. It's just done at a different level. Yeah. So it is very similar. A lot of the practices we seem to implement now in cybersecurity or in technology do have a lot of historical precedents being used in military operations. Yeah. Well, military campaigns, I think there's a historical fact, which is military campaigns and Organized crime are the two greatest innovators for everything we have in cybersecurity (laughs) these days. (laughs) Yes, yes. And the only time the two have merged was in World War II when the Italian mafia helped defend like the Port of New York. Just a little side fact there. (laughs) That's fascinating. I never heard that. Yeah. You could probably tell some pretty interesting unclassified stories, I would say, probably. The background that you have is really quite interesting to me. I never served in the area of threat intelligence because when I got started in my career, it really wasn't quite the big deal that it is now. And 
as we look forward, this is a skill you have that's foundational that is so, so critically important in everything that we're facing. I mean, if solar winds didn't make that really clear, oh. um, <laughs> right? Oh, solar winds. <laughs> It did. It absolutely did make that clear. I've had so many conversations in the last few months about the solar winds hack. I'm sure. Yes. I'm not going to ask you about it on this show, actually, because I bet you've talked about it a whole lot in other places. Okay. So I would love for you to share a little bit more about your growth in this industry. You know, you you said that you kind of fell into it, but I think you were kind of meant to be in it, maybe. So here you are. And a lot of people who are at the early stages of their career in all age groups, really, because so many people are trying to find a path that will help them move into doing work in the cybersecurity arena, which is fantastic. But they're talking about like, what are the effective ways to land really my first position in some field of information security? So Do you have some, from your vantage point that you're at now, do you have some advice and suggestions that you can share with people who are at that kind of early stage or entry level? Yeah, I absolutely can. I mean, I was definitely there in the private sector a bit later in life after I graduated from college. So I do have that experience. What I would suggest is if you're really early and you're, you know, in your collegiate years, Make that your goal and communicate that goal to your professors, communicate that goal to, you know, your future employers or advocates, go to job fairs, talk to people who work in cybersecurity, they're there and ask them, like, if you have a specific organization in mind, of course, ask them for, hey, what is your organization looking for, for an entry level individual? Because each organization is different. Now, on top of that, of course... You could go the more traditional routes of doing, you know, a a degree in computer science or computer information systems or computer engineering. Those are the easiest ways, but it's not the only way. So you could also become a business analyst. That could get you there. An interesting road into cybersecurity or into any kind of cybersecurity work is sort of in the realm of law enforcement going into accounting. And then going to work for the FBI, doing sort of that like investigation into, you know, that kind of white collar crime, because you will be handling and working with very, you know, targeted information systems. And that's just an interesting road. I have seen people make that transition before. And also accountants tend to do what we call SOC 2 audits. Those SOC 2 audits evaluate security controls. And as a consultant, I see a lot of SOC 2 reports. And, you know, if you say are an accountant now and you want to make a transition, become a SOC 2 auditor, then transition from SOC 2 auditor to information system security. There is so much out there in terms of training you can do as just an individual. So not a student, but just an individual. You can get your CISSP, which I just recently got and studied for. It is a beast of an exam. I apologize for suggesting it, (laughs) but it is a good exam. It is a good qualification to have. It's just difficult. Or you can also focus on system-specific. 
So you can focus on being a security admin for AWS, Amazon Web Services. You can focus on doing it for Azure or Google. And there's so much training that is affordable or free. I'm a big fan of YouTube videos. It is free content out there showing you how to work within this industry and in very ingestible like tidbits, like 10-minute, 20-minute videos. But I think if I were to talk about just in general, the best thing you can do is advocate for yourself, find mentors, find a community and get into that community. I have seen like in my office alone, there's a gentleman who's a pen tester who he worked his way up from just your IT help desk to being a pen tester. He started from ground up, just IT help desk, you know, bottom of the rung IT person to now he is a very skilled, very valued penetration tester. And he did that all on his own, working and building his skills out of sight of work. We have another individual who has a journalism major. I mean, there are so many avenues to get into this. Like, it really is, if you have an interest in cybersecurity, the only thing really stopping you at the end of the day is going to be you. It just takes dedication, persistence, and building your own skill set. That's really encouraging. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about people that are doing career switching, mm-hmm. that are kind of bootstrapping it without having to go get an expensive degree. You also, you mentioned CISSP, and there, I know there's some other things that are out there as well where people can get yeah. certifications. One of the things I wonder about a lot, this didn't exist when I was at the early stages of my career. So I'd love to kind of get your perspective on you know, collecting a chain of certifications. Do you think that's really important or is that something that people could put less emphasis on and focus on, you know, building their career another way? What do you think about that? I'm of two minds. So it is possible to build your career without certifications. I mean, I've done it for the last eight to 10 years (laughs) and I just now got my first real big one. So yes, it is possible to focus on other avenues such as networking, you know, building your career, working your way up through a company or multiple companies into that position. But I feel like certifications are an equalizer. And while I feel like sometimes there's too much emphasis put on, especially for entry level, I've seen entry level you know, cybersecurity positions, like five years experience, must hold two certifications. I've seen those. I've looked at them. And sometimes I feel like there is too much emphasis placed on a certification, especially when a person is skilled at what they do, and they know they're skilled, and they can prove to you they're skilled through a technical interview. But I also feel like certifications are an equalizer, especially in an industry in which I think women make up 20%. I don't quote me on the statistic, but it was a very small percentage of women in cybersecurity. And those certifications can lend your voice and your skills that you already have and your experience a little more weight. And while I think it is unfair that we have to rely on them or that they can add weight to the skills a woman already possesses and the you know, expertise and knowledge authority she already has, they can help. 
And because once you have those fun acronyms behind your name, people automatically take you more seriously and trust what you say just a little bit more. So again, I'm of two minds. I don't think you need them, but I think they can help, especially for people who aren't the stereotypical cybersecurity guy. (laughs) I really love that response, especially when you kind of qualify it by saying, yeah, it's unfair that women would actually need them to have the same level of gravitas in a, you know, all other things being equal, (laughs) that having the extra certification is something that we might need. And I agree with you there. I think the one cautionary thing that I've been saying, but I'd love to have your perspective on it is we need to not let that be get in our bonnet that says we have to have these in order to be credible because we really don't. Right. Right. You can speak with confidence and speak with authority when you have that confidence that goes a long way in any kind of conversation or job search. And when we get it in our head that it's essential for us to have these, whether it's because we're, you know, whether it's gender or race or any other kind of thing, then we've we've set it up basically that says it's the initials after our name that give us our authority, not ourselves. And I I really, I think that's a trap we can fall into. What do you think? Oh, I absolutely agree. It's a trap. But I also think that there is the reality of the situation that it's a very male-dominated industry. Yeah. And in terms of culture, it's not shifting nearly as fast as it wants to be or as fast as some companies like to say they are. Because it's very easy for a company marketing team to say, we support women or we support people of color or we support these diversity initiatives. But then you get into that environment and you find it's the exact opposite. Yeah. Yeah. So... Yeah. Okay. So you've teed it up. I'm going to ask this question. (laughs) Because I always do this when I'm learning about a new company. So as I was getting ready for our, you know, our interview and talking together, I noticed that, and I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I did notice that in the company leadership team, this is so typical, there's a woman in finance and there's a woman in HR, right? But mm-hmm. there's no women at the senior leadership level who are in line positions for the delivery of services. And that's really a typical pattern in cybersecurity companies. And as we're talking about trying to get more women into the field without having women representation in line positions in the leadership team, I'd love to just kind of get your take without talking about any particular company. What will it take for women to have greater representation in moving into these line roles at the senior leadership level? Any thoughts on that? So not being at that level myself, which one day I will be. (laughs) That's a, you know what, that's a really important first step. Yeah. You see it, right? Yeah. And just like you were in in college, you were intentional about what it was you wanted to do. Once you kind of fell into something, you got intentional about it. So, okay. So intention is a big deal. Yes. Yeah. Intention is a big deal. However, as a woman in this industry, I often feel that just speaking from my perspective is that, you know, 
getting more women in this industry from a top-down perspective in terms of companies, it's important to see other women in those roles. In a C-suite role, in a director role, in a manager role, in technology in general, and then definitely in cybersecurity. I have never in my career, and I'm aging myself, <laughs> my 10 plus years at this point, if you oh, can. please. Don't talk to me about age. That's fair. <laughs> It's just now hitting me though. So I'm going like, oh, wow, it's been a while. But I've never worked under a woman. And it is very often that I have until recently found myself being the only woman in the room. Still. Wow. Yeah. I would say until recently, I'm now I have, you know, my female squad at work and that's great. But it's ridiculous. It took that long. And that is in part so because of the culture of technology. You know, I hate to put them on the spot, but I'm gonna. But every tech industry company, unless it is founded and run by a woman, is or has at one point in its life cycle suffered as a proverbial boys club. And so it is so vital that we see not just women at the top, but we see people of color at the top, that we see people who identify differently at the top. We need to see these people elevated, particularly when we know, like, we know there are qualified individuals who have been overlooked time and time again that are not being promoted because they don't know the right person or because, you know, they don't play the game that we have seen, which I say boys club. And I mean, I live in the South, so it's, it, I am very well attuned to how that works and has worked for a very long time yeah. for gentlemen. And I think one thing that we as women need to do is essentially say that was their strategy then. Why can't that be our strategy now? So if you are a woman in cybersecurity, if you are a woman in technology, don't fall into the trap of being the only woman in the room and then guarding that position with every fiber of your being. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Don't be a gatekeeper. Don't be a gate opener. Advocate for women. You know, if you know a project is coming up and you know so and so from another team would be an excellent resource of that project, throw her name into the pool and advocate for her. Because we can be each other's biggest advocates. And then our allies who are men, who I have had the honor of having advocates who are men, they have stood up for me. They have helped me get jobs. They have given me advice. They also have a part to play. And that's looking at, I see this woman or this very young woman, say college, because I've also had male professors you know, help me through that. And I've had those mentors who are male help me. And who have accepted my gender, look past it and said, no, you want her. Like She is the skilled one. And I would not be where I am today without those allies and those female advocates. And so that is sort of, I guess, what I strive to do now is I always strive to look at women of talent, women of capability and skill and be like, nope, go to her. She's amazing. Nope, go to her. She's awesome. Because too many times have I seen it happen when 
you know, a male colleague is being asked questions that he has no idea about. (laughs) Right. But he's being asked because people assume, whether it's by his position or by some subtle bias, that he will know more than I will. And inevitably, he will turn around. I've literally had him turn around in his seat in front of people and ask me the same question because he knew I knew the answer. So (laughs) that's fantastic. I mean, that they would, it's like, wait a second, let me check with Jenna. Yeah. And so that's what I want to stress. I think the most is if you are an ally to the women in your company and you know, you're in a position of privilege due to subtle gender bias that does exist. And that is very real in our industry to this day. You have the power to go, you know what? I don't know your answer. Go to Sally, you know, the software development team. She's been doing a lot of research on this. She'll know. I love that. And you bring back to my memory the time that I knew that I actually could be a reference authority because I was working in my office. I was working in the research and technology division at Boeing at the time. So I was fairly early in my career and the director of research and technology came into my office and looked me straight in the eye and said, I have a question and I need your help. And I was like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Like that for me was such an affirming moment. It Mm -hmm. literally like changed the way I look at my value add in an organization, like in an instant. And I think that's a really important message that you're highlighting that says, this is how impactful just the acknowledgement that you don't have to answer the question yourself. You know what? Pass the baton to a woman in the organization that you know can handle it because it will make a world of difference. It absolutely will. And she may never tell you that. Right. But it is... An unfortunate fact that many women in technology and many women in cybersecurity to this day still suffer from imposter syndrome. I know I fight those feelings regularly, (laughs) but I just I want to tell other women or anyone in there who is struggling that, you know what, it don't ignore those feelings because they're yours. (laughs) Rather, find a way to accept them and also accept that those feelings are lying to you. Well, we've accepted, I call this the Brotopia blueprint, but I think we've accepted. (laughs) I'm stealing that. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think we've internalized the messaging of Brotopia to some degree, right? And we don't even recognize that it's internally applied, but we've absorbed it and it undermines our confidence and our authority. We allow that to happen, but we're doing it in such a subconscious way, we don't realize it. Mm -hmm. That whole idea of imposter syndrome, of not speaking up in a room full of men, of all the things that sometimes we do because we're actually, and there's a real risk, but we're actually afraid of the risk of being labeled pushy, bossy, you know, whatever those non-actionable personal (laughs) judgments are. Yeah, other expletives. 
<laughs> but the ones that we don't hear on the official review. Yeah. But yeah, we could talk about that forever. I'm curious, you speak with, I mean, you can hear it in your voice. I'm sure everybody who's listening to us right now can hear this in your voice. You speak with a quiet confidence, but a very assured confidence. Even if you do claim some imposter syndrome, it doesn't show up in your voice. And one of the things that I'm wondering is, did something in your training or your, you know, your personal history help you find that center where you speak with your authority? And what advice do you have for women who are struggling in a Brotopia blueprint, right, are struggling with their sense of authority and confidence and speaking up in a room full of men? So practice. <laughs> Just do it. Is that what you're saying? Just do it? Well, yes, just do it. But that's also easier said than done. I I will say military training does help because obviously it's, I'm very good at getting to the point. (laughs) Just because when you're in the middle of an operation or mission, you don't have time to beat around the bush. So you get very good at just speaking your mind, speaking it plainly, openly, and loudly, or in my case, at least. I've never been a loud talker, so I had to at least speak with some assertiveness to be heard. But the advice I would give to other women is practice makes perfect. And yes, fake it till you make it works. Even if you have to like do it in the car. Like I've done that. I've practiced my what a soliloquy in my car before, just talking through what I'm going to go over for the day or just, you know, writing out your thoughts, you know, or practicing with a coworker. And I know practicing speaking seems a little odd, but it really helps to build your confidence when you know, okay, I can talk about this subject with authority. Now I just have to prove to myself that I can. Yeah. It really is just proving it to yourself because any woman can. And you don't have to be an extrovert to do it. You don't have to be, you know, a JFK style spokesperson who just has that natural charisma. Instead, talk as yourself, recognize your strengths because we all have them and realize when you are speaking with authority and when you know a subject better than someone. And that doesn't necessarily mean speaking in an arrogant way. It just means not questioning yourself in the moment, especially in my field, because there are times, especially during an incident or a cybersecurity event, when questioning yourself is not helpful. Go with your gut, go with your instincts, and speak your mind, and be assertive. And remember, when you're advocating for yourself as a woman, you're also advocating for the next woman who will step in your position. So true. Oh, that is really well said. Thank you for bringing that out because you are the strong shoulders for the next woman to stand on. And when you can see yourself that way, when a person can see herself that way, it does give us a certain sense of, I don't know, inner strength that we might not realize we can call upon. You know, just remember that it is, it isn't just about us. It's about who's coming after us and how do we make that platform for them to be able to have it a little easier. That's what I think I hear you saying. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's so much I love about what you're saying (laughs) that I'm just kind of blown away. We have very similar 
perspectives. And so I guess that's why I'm loving it so much because we agree, right? (laughs) (laughs) The whole area of confidence is such a big deal. And when you said fake it till you make it, some people kind of, I find some people when I say that phrase, they have a little bit of a negative reaction because they feel that it's not authentic. And here's, I'll just take a minute to kind of offer some perspective on that. If that's, you're listening today and you think that that fake it till you make it is not an authentic way to do it. The truth of it is, is fake it till you make it is another way of saying, give your true self the chance to practice your greatness because we are the ones holding ourselves back sometimes. And you know what? It's going to be frightening in some ways. It's true for men and women because men do the fake it till you make it thing all the time. Oh yeah, they're really good at it. They're very (laughs) good at it. They're practiced, right? It's practice, but it serves them, Mm -hmm. right? And it's okay to say to yourself, man, this just, this feels uncomfortable. I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. That is what some people would call fake it till you make it. But the truth of it is, is that practice does give you progress. Practice does make it better over time. We're not aiming for perfection. We're aiming for better than last time. And the other thing that I would say is, and there's going to be times where it goes very badly. And just just to give you an example, because I, I was kind of in a military environment, although I was in the private sector, I was working for the Boeing company, and I was the security program manager for the development of the advanced tactical fighter, which is now the F-22. And I remember needing to go in and stand in front of an entire conference room full of, you know, middle-aged men most of them having come out of, you know, senior roles in the military, all of them aerospace engineering types and working on this aircraft and telling them that we had a security issue that we needed to deal with. And I'm standing up there in my best fake it till you make it. I'm literally probably sweating buckets of stress sweat. And I give my message and that guy at the head of the table who was the head of the program stood up and he looked at me and he goes, do you know what we do on this program? We build airplanes. I mean, and it went downhill from there. It was the most condescending, you know, kind of tone. Mm -hmm. And I could just, I'm standing there in this room with like, there's no place to go, right? You just have to, I learned this early. Don't fight back, just take it. Everybody in the room is as uncomfortable as me. (laughs) Yes, yes, they are. Somebody else is being a jerk. And then just, you know, exit the room gracefully. And I remember as I walked out, one of the guys, it was a Navy guy who was with me. He said, well, that was like giving birth to barbed wire. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, you know, that's one of, that is a great Very excruciating description, but it's really true. And so there's going to be those moments where it goes badly. Yes. But it's not you, right? It's not us. We can always work on delivery and we can always work on presentation and how we can work those things. But the truth of it is we're always going to encounter somebody who has to make you feel small and don't let that happen, right? Don't let that be get under the helmet. Yeah. And that brings to mind something that I've taken to heart in part of my career. And 
I think she's an idol for a lot of women, but I have a unique love for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And she once said that you shouldn't be distracted by emotions like anger, envy, or resentment, because all that does is zap your energy and waste your time. It doesn't allow you to be productive. (laughs) That's brilliant. And I always like that is something I try to bring to the workplace. That doesn't mean when I face something like you face, which I have, I don't go home and I'm not upset. I'm definitely upset. I just save it for when I'm at home. (laughs) I think as women, we become very good at compartmentalizing that way in terms of the workplace. Well, I've cried in front of my boss. I mean, I'll admit that, right? Mm -hmm. We can let the level of stress sometimes get us to that breaking point. And there's no shame in that either. Not at all. We're human beings. And it's just until we can change the culture in the tech environment to be more inclusive of people acting as human beings that we have, you know, they call it human resources. (laughs) We have to learn that we're you know, we're all human and that we're uniquely expressing emotion in the workplace is a part of us. I think, you know, we aren't there yet, but here's just what I, I guess one thing I'd like to throw out there, see what you think. It's like, okay, confidence and authority. If you have to play fake it till you make it, do it, practice it, and don't let the fear of somebody being an absolute jerk or tears stop you from speaking your truth. Right. I would agree with that 100%. I imagine you've had some practice in the military. Oh, I have. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Something you said just, I don't know. I just feel like there are ways our industry can do that in supporting women or just anyone being human By understanding that we are human, we are not automatons, and we are not as much as the tech industry would love for us all to be automated. (laughs) We are not. We are people. And I think that does sometimes get lost in the conversation. It does get lost. And I think we expect people to keep a sort of a front up at work that is not fully human. And hopefully one of the things that we can do as we come redefine what the new workplace looks like Mm -hmm. post-COVID is say, gosh, you know what? We've just spent more than the last year in each other's homes on Zoom. Let's talk about how we keep the humanity and bring humanity back to work, right? Right. And bring women back to work because... Absolutely. Women have had to leave the workforce in mass because we're still under the this culture where women are still primary caretakers. And that is concerning to me because we've made such strides in just the last decade. And then to see one year of devastation to all of the work women in every industry have done just gets smashed. <laughs> yeah, it set us back 10 years at least. At least. And yeah, David Smith and Brad Johnson, they're both Navy guys (laughs) and they teach at the academy and they just wrote a book called Good Guys. And one of the things that they talk about is equity begins at home. Yes, it does. And if anything, they were saying that before the pandemic. 
<laughs> and if anything, the pandemic showed us how important that is. So, yeah, we have some ground to recover there. In the time that we've got left, we talked at the very beginning of the episode about intention, right? So if you were going to just put it out there to the universe, what your future desires, dreams, goals are for your career in this field, what would that look like? So having worked in my space as long as I have, I think for me, if I were to set an intention, it's to set an intention of driving cybersecurity strictly from a military operations or a business into more of a socioeconomic and political sphere. Because for so long, I have seen one cybersecurity breach after another, after another, after another, due to the negligence and incompetence of multiple companies and multiple industries who fail to invest, who fail to do their due diligence, and seeing it time and time again for the last 20 years and 10 years that I've been working is frustrating. I think at this point in my career, I'm looking towards probably redirecting towards privacy and redirecting my efforts towards finding a way, whether through industry regulation or even public policy or laws, making sure that if you as an organization government or otherwise, or private sector, if you act in such a way that negatively impacts 500,000 people, a million people, 1.3 million businesses, which we have seen in the solar winds attack, you know, which another example is where we saw, you know, the Experian hack where the CEO was like, oh, it's the cybersecurity guy's fault. I know they totally threw the admin under the bus. Yes. Yes, they did. And I I see that and I'm like, no wonder we have a shortage of people who want to work in cybersecurity. <laughs> right. But for me, it's there is a level that the American people, and I can only speak for people in the United States because I'm in the United States. So people in the United States should tolerate. I think it's high time that we actually have mandated cybersecurity regulations of some kind in place because this is a, no longer just affecting a business's bottom line. This is affecting people's lives. It's affecting their health data. It's affecting their children. I mean, kids nowadays, they'll be recognized from infancy through old age, through facial recognition technology, they were born without privacy. And to me, we need a standard and we need that standard across the board to ensure that everyone benefits from cybersecurity and privacy equally. And it is no longer just hoping a company acts ethically. It sounds like what you're saying for your future intention. <laughs> Sorry, I can rant about that all day. <laughs> no, but I get that. And I think we could do an entire another episode on this because you're, you're speaking to something near and dear to my own heart. Mm -hmm. But from an intention standpoint, you have clearly passion around what will it take for 
the private sector and even the public sector Mm -hmm. to finally get serious and to put some teeth into this is what cybersecurity looks like and this is what it looks like if we don't have it. Therefore, you don't have the option anymore not to do it. So I'm guessing I'm going to see you leading that charge at some level one of these days. I hope so. I definitely think it's important, not just for your average everyday person, but for national security as well. It goes up all tiers of our socioeconomic sphere in the United States. Yeah. The individual all the way up to national security. Spoken like someone who has an insight from threat intelligence. <laughs> I don't know, maybe. But, <laughs> so we can't go there. But yeah, I've worked in this field for 30 years and I've watched it develop. And I remember standing on a podium at Stanford Research Institute along with people like Howard Schmidt and Rhonda McLean, who were, mm-hmm. you know, luminaries in the field in in those days and the head of Interpol and the chairman of Stanford Research Institute saying, we have to do something now. This is going to get so much worse if we don't take action. And here we are 20 years later and it's a freaking disaster. So, yeah. Yes, we are are watching a train wreck. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This has been a 25-year train wreck. And it's not over yet. (laughs) We haven't counted all the casualties, but the train wreck is still, it's like this big long line of train that just keeps piling up and we haven't seen the massive destruction of all of it yet. But yeah, on that happy note. (laughs) (laughs) Always love to end on a high note. (laughs) Well, I'm grateful to see you in this profession, making your contribution and with such a clarity and passion over it. And I I know that will personally take you far. It'll serve your clients well. It'll serve your company well. You're currently working for True Digital Security. I want to thank them publicly for giving you the opportunity to be on the show. So would you like to kind of let people know how they can get in touch with you if they want to follow up with you and also find out more about True Digital Security? So if you want to find out more about True Digital Security, they are on LinkedIn under True Digital Security, or that you can find them at truedigitalsecurity.com. Real easy to find them. Just Google it and promise they'll be the first or second (laughs) result that pops up. As for me, I'm not really big on social media, but I am on LinkedIn, as I believe you and I've discussed previously, at Jenna Waters, J-E-N-N-A. I am on LinkedIn, or you can also get in touch with me through my company page. My email's there, so. Perfect. And you're cool with people sending you connection requests on LinkedIn? I am. I absolutely am. I will say if it's through a podcast, try and send me a note mentioning the podcast. I tend to scrutinize invitations a little bit, but I am happy to accept them. Just maybe put in the note, hey, I heard you on such and such podcast. You don't even have to tell me I did a good job. You have to say you heard me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, point of reference. That's great. That's amazing. Thank you for being here today. This has been delightful. I want to talk again sometime about, you know, what the area we're exploring here at the end of the show today. 
about what's it going to take for cybersecurity to improve. That's a whole nother topic we could really get into that I think that would be fascinating. I've enjoyed speaking with you today so much, and I know this is going to be very helpful to the people listening. So thanks for being here. No, I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. And I'd also be happy to come back and, you know, discuss the future of cybersecurity and its brother, privacy. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Let's make a plan. We'll talk about that and set that up. And so, Jenna, I'm going to, I think we're going to sign off on the show today, but thanks again. And thanks to True Digital Security for having you here. And we will catch up soon. All right. Thank you. That's it for today's show. Mojo Maker for Women in Tech podcast is part of the ecosystem of knowledge sharing and affordable group coaching to help reverse the trend of women leaving tech and to help diverse women in male-dominated industries get the visibility, opportunities, and compensation they deserve. Be sure to check out our five-day challenge by visiting us online at createyourleadingedge.com. Like what you hear? Subscribe, share, or leave a review wherever you listen to the show. We'll be back again next week. Be well, stay strong, and remember, be an ally.